You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. We do thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for your amazing grace, your grace that brings profound transformation to our lives and our world We thank you that your grace is revealed in and through Jesus to us, and thank you that we have your word that bears witness to him. So we pray now that you would illumine the reading and preaching of your word through the power of your spirit, that we would be those who don't just hear it, but bring the whole of ourselves in response to it today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Hey, it's good to see you again, Third Church family, and if you're any visitors today, I want to welcome you also especially Um, This is the second Sunday of Epiphany, which I know is probably your favorite season of all. You've got all your Epiphany decorations out at home. Um, Epiphany is that season of the church year between Christmas and Lent. And um, it means, Epiphania in Greek means uh, manifestation. And so in the season of Epiphany, the church has historically focused on how the grace and the power and the beauty and the love of God are manifested or revealed in and through the life and ministry of Jesus. So grace through Jesus changes everything. That's what Epiphany is focused on. So I thought it'd be fun um, in this season of Epiphany for us to look at this wonderful little book called Philemon, which is towards the end of the New Testament. Maybe you've never even read it before. It's real tiny. It's back there somewhere around Hebrews and Titus. Um, and this book essentially is about the kind of great change that grace brings. Um, Philemon was one of the great leaders uh, of the church in Colossae. He and his wife, Aphia, hosted a house church in their large home. Um, he was a wealthy landowner. He was a convert of the Apostle Paul, a good friend of Paul's, and he was also a slave owner. Now, uh, let me just give you a little bit of background on slavery in the first century. We didn't get a chance to talk about this last week. But slavery in the Greco-Roman world was essential to society. It was, it was deeply part of the culture at the time. It was a slave economy. And so slaves were essential to the way life worked. It would be the way we think about TVs or cars or mortgages today. It's just something that was embedded within the social structure of the time. About one-third of all people in the Greco-Roman world were slaves, and another third were previous slaves, freed slaves. Um, Slaves uh, were, slavery in the first century was really different than the race-based chattel form of slavery that we have experienced in America. Um, In fact, if you saw someone on the street, there would be no way, there were no racial factors. There would be no way you could tell whether someone was a slave or not. Uh, People became slaves as prisoners of war, uh, being born to a slave woman, Um, Perhaps, which was quite common, people would sell themselves into slavery in order to work themselves out of debt. Uh, Slaves were often very educated. They could be educated as doctors and lawyers, accountants, teachers, ship captains. Slaves could own property. Many of them actually owned slaves themselves. The majority of slaves could anticipate emancipation by the time they were 30, along with Roman citizenship. So in some ways in the Roman Empire, slavery was almost a way of integrating outsiders into the society rather than a permanent condition. Now, despite all of these differences, uh, it is still a great evil of the ancient world and one that caused tremendous harm to many thousands of people. Now, in our case, as we're talking about Philemon, Philemon, we learn, was a slave owner. He had a slave named Onesimus, 
And we don't know for sure the circumstances, but it would appear that Onesimus ran away. He stole money from his owner, his household, um, and ran away as a fugitive. And somehow he made his way to Rome, where Paul had been arrested and was in jail. He was under house arrest. And Onesimus came to him and began to spend time with him. And in the process, Onesimus became a Christian through the ministry of Paul. And he and Paul actually became dear friends. So on the occasion of this letter, Paul is sending Onesimus with this letter in his hand back to his former master as Paul is pleading on Onesimus' behalf for forgiveness, uh, for reconciliation, and as we'll see next week, ultimately for manumission to set him free. So let's pick up our text starting in verse eight. If you have your Bibles and you wanna open or open an app on your phone, we're gonna talk today about how grace changes relationships. So let's start with verse eight. Paul writes to Philemon, therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than Paul, an old man now, also a prisoner in Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. Now he's, kids, he's not, he's not his actual son. He's become a spiritual son by converting under Paul's guidance, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated you for a little while was that you might have him back forever no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a beloved brother. He is dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, at this point, you can imagine Paul grabbing the quill from his secretary. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention, my friend, you owe me your very self. This is the word of the Lord. I love Ernest Hemingway. I love his novels and his short stories. And one of his short stories that he wrote in 1936 when he was living in Spain at the time of the Spanish Civil War, he wrote a short story called uh, The Capital of the World. And the story opens with these lines. Madrid is full of boys named Paco. Paco is a diminutive of the name Francisco. There is a Madrid story, a true story, about a father who came to Madrid and inserted an advertisement in the personal column of the newspaper, El Liberal. The ad said this, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. On Tuesday, a squadron of soldiers had to be called to disperse the 800 young men who answered that ad, all of them named Paco. Such a beautiful story that, of course, speaks to the common name of Paco in the town of Madrid, but also, I think, just speaks to this longing that we all have to be forgiven and to forgive and to be reconciled, and to experience healing in our most broken relationships. You know, there is so much at the same time, despite that longing, that resists that desire. We are all hurt 
in various ways by people in our lives. We carry hurt, pain, slights, wounds. Actually, I would say it is not just likely, but impossible, inevitable to make your way through this world as a human being, to be in relationship with any other human being and not at times experience harm, injury, pain, and conflict. To be human is to experience relational pain. And I think we all, as we begin this new year, we, we, we wanna be new, we wanna change, and some of that has to do with our personal lives, but a lot of it, I think, has to do with our relationships. A lot of us long for change, especially in some of our most fraught relationships. We long for things to, to be healed. We long for conflict to be healed. We long to have that reconciliation like Paco and his father in our own lives. And yet it often feels impossible. And this book, Philemon, is about how grace makes it possible. This book is about grace, how grace changes everything. And in just these three weeks, last week, this and next, we'll be looking at the different catalyst, the dynamic of change that the gospel brings, that grace brings in our lives. Last week, we looked at how grace changes us personally. It transforms us from the inside out. Today, we're looking about how grace changes our relationships. Next week, we're gonna see how grace itself even becomes a catalyst for socioeconomic political change in the social orders that we inhabit. But today, we're speaking about how grace changes relationships. Let me say this, grace changes for the Christian. If you are a Christian today, or if you're exploring becoming a Christian, let me say this, grace changes how we deal with conflict fundamentally in our relationship. I would even go so far as to say this, one of the greatest tests of the genuineness of your faith, you wanna know if your faith is real? One of the greatest tests of the genuineness of your faith comes when you must deal with conflict in your relationships. The essential fruit, the fruit of grace in your life is transformed relationships, newness of life with and for others, especially those that you find most challenging. So how does this happen? How does grace work? How does grace change the way that we handle conflict in this way? Two things I wanna talk about today that we see in this letter. First, grace calls us to forgiveness not retaliation, and grace produces reconciliation over and against estrangement. Forgiveness, not retaliation, reconciliation, not estrangement, okay? And I, I just wanna challenge you guys to think about someone in your life right now that you might be having a conflict with and keep that person in mind as we're talking today, okay? So first, grace produces forgiveness over and against retaliation. Paul is writing this letter to two guys, both of whom he led to Christ, both of whom he has deep affection for, and he is urging them to set aside the way the world handles conflict and instead to practice a radical act of forgiveness. Now, in the letter, he's mainly addressing Philemon, the slave owner, right? Philemon has some serious charges and complaints against Onesimus, and we don't know all the details, uh, but we can piece together a few from this letter. Verse 11 Paul refers to how Onesimus was formerly useless. Maybe Onesimus was incompetent or he was lazy or he was just a bad worker. Uh, verse 18 references a wrong or a debt of some kind, suggesting Onesimus potentially stole something from Philemon's household. And then finally, of course, Onesimus ran away, costing Philemon time and money and disruption to his household. Now, the normal way for a master to have handled something like this in the first century Greco-Roman world was to mete out terrible punishment on a slave. In fact, 
Roman law gave slave owners the legal right to execute their own slaves in such circumstances. And so Paul is writing to Philemon and he's saying, hey man, don't do any of that. Don't do it. Don't retaliate. Do not give this man, this young man, what your society and your culture has told you that he deserves. Instead, verse eight, I am asking you to take him back, not only (laughs) not to give him what he deserves, but to go beyond and receive him as a fellow brother in Christ, incorporating him into the spiritual household of his own family. He's asking him to do a radical act of forgiveness. But this is not the only act of forgiveness he's asking for. He's also probably worked with Onesimus. Now, Onesimus had his own injuries and his own hurts. You probably, how many times have you heard the phrase, I'm hurting people hurt people? Never heard that before? Um, if, if someone is hurting you or if you see someone acting out in malicious behavior towards someone else, it's likely because they are a hurting person. They are carrying deep wounds, something from their past, something from their deeper story working it out beneath the surface. And so, yeah, Onesimus has done some things, but why? Well, this is a conjecture, of course. I have no evidence that he was harshly treated. But just think of this. When you escape and run away, it is because being a homeless fugitive is a more appealing prospect than staying in your current situation. So, y'all, there's gotta be something that he wanted to leave, right? He was hurt. Uh, Going every day, treated as property, a tool, Nothing much more than a farm animal. I mean, that can do a lot to a person's soul. So I can imagine, you know, we only see one side of the story. We only see what Paul's saying to Philemon. I can imagine him sitting with his, this young man, Onesimus, having long talks with him day after day, working through his bitterness, working through his pain, helping him, you know, work through these things, urging him ultimately to forgive. What Paul is asking from each of these men is very costly. He is asking Philemon to swallow his pride and to forfeit his rights of what he gets to do. He's asking him to accept potentially being misunderstood and even maligned by his peers and colleagues and others in his household for not doing what society expected of him. And goodness, Anesimus, he is asking him to take an enormous risk to make himself vulnerable, to put himself out there with the possibility of being re-injured. Forgiveness, y'all, the act of forgiveness is costly. And you might be thinking, well, this isn't right. There was real harm done on both sides. Well, let me be clear with you what forgiveness is not. And I I really want to be clear about this because some of you have been really hurt. Forgiveness, first of all, is not excusing the offense. It's not letting the other person off the hook, not acting like what they did to you is no big deal. Forgiveness is not incompatible with justice, okay? Second, Forgiveness is not forgetting. You hear that phrase, forgive and forget? Stupid, stupid, right? Like you can forgive someone and still have to work through the ongoing memories of what occurred. Third, forgiveness is not reconciliation. We'll talk about that in just a moment. So what is forgiveness? Well, considering that Jesus literally commanded us to forgive, forgive is not a feeling. Forgiveness is an act of the will. It is a decision or most likely a series of decisions to not make the person pay for what they've done to you. It is the willingness to absorb prior injury without demanding payback, without insisting that you get your pound of flesh, without insisting that you get to even the score. In fact, the word forgive in the Lord's Prayer, forgive, 
as the Lord forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, that word is an economic word. It it was an economic term at the time, which is why Peter, Jesus uses the phrase debts. Every time someone hurts you or wounds or injures, a debt is created. Imagine if someone came into your home and they, I don't know, they quickly moved their elbow back and they broke a lamp. They broke a $50 lamp. Two things would happen. You could say, hey man, you broke my lamp. Give me 50 bucks. You pay for it. You could say that, or you could say, don't worry about it. I'll just pay the 50 bucks and buy another lamp. But either way, a debt is created by the injury and one person has to absorb the cost of the debt. Even if you decide to not buy a lamp, you are still absorbing the cost of having a house with less light, right? In some way, a debt is created by the offense that somebody has to pay. So when someone hurts you, someone offends you, someone injures you, wrongs you, there is a sense that a debt has been created, that justice has been violated, that something is right. But in this case, the currency is not money. The currency is pain. It's pain. And who's going to absorb the pain? That's the question. Well, what we want to do, what we want to do, do you know? We want to make the other person pay it. How do you do that? Oh, well, I'm an expert in this. Talk to me. You you could do it by gossiping about them, by attacking them, by rooting for their demise, by hoping that something happens to them that hurts them just as much as it hurt me, by giving them the cold shoulder, by avoiding them, silent treatment, inflicting emotional pain. See, and when you do these things, it actually kind of gives you a, can I say this? It gives you kind of a perverse pleasure because you sense the debt reducing the more you can imagine pain inflicted on the other. But guess what? Jesus says, if you follow me, you may not do this. It's prohibited. So if that guy doesn't pay, who pays? You. You absorb the cost of the offense. You make a decision that you will not then make the other pay and you will pay it yourself. How do you do that? You stop rehearsing their offense. You stop rooting for their demise. You refuse vengeful thoughts. You refuse to talk or gossip about the other. You speak kindly about them when you want to smear them. You root and you pray for for their good. Is this easy? No. It hurts. It hurts like hell. Because literally, you're getting out the hell that's inside of you. Right? You are choosing to absorb the pain of the debt of the other. And you might say, why would I ever want to do this? Well, here's why. Because this is what God has done for you. Notice how Paul reminds Philemon of his own debt. He says, don't forget, my friend, you owe me your very self. You've been saved. You've been redeemed. You've been forgiven. You may look like this rich, wealthy guy who's got it all together, but I know who you are. You are a poor sinner who has been set free and who another, Jesus Christ, has paid for your debt. So I'm not going to tell you what to do, he says, but you know what to do. (laughs) You respond to this young man with the same degree of grace that you have received yourself. Let's see what you do. Colossians 3.13, in a letter that was delivered with this very letter, Paul writes, bear with one another and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's you. You, your debt has been canceled. Your debt has been paid. You've been set free. You are forgiven. Now act in alignment with who you are and what you have received You are someone who has been given the undeserved grace of God through the costly act of another through Jesus Christ. So 
if you're a Christian, this is the first radical act that is required of you. Forgiveness, not retaliation. Who do you need to forgive? Your mom, your dad, one of your kids, a friend, a sibling, a neighbor, your boss. Who is God calling you to forgive in this radical way? That's the first call, really hard. The second is that grace produces not just forgiveness, but reconciliation. Not estrangement, but reconciliation. Now, let me say this before we dig in. Forgiveness and reconciliation are two very different things. I would say, as your pastor, that forgiveness is required of you in every situation, but reconciliation is not. There's a big difference between forgiving someone and being restored in relationship with them. You can forgive someone that you don't trust. You can forgive someone who doesn't understand how they hurt you. You can forgive someone who is far away. You can forgive someone who is dead. I would say you must do so. Because as Lewis Smead says, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. You know, wrath, um, wrath, the, the old English word wrath comes from the old English term wreath. And of course, if you've seen the Lord of the Rings, do you remember the, do you remember the wraiths? The ones who roamed the earth because they could not let go of the past. It's, I mean, it's amazing. By, by suppressing wrath, it twists you like a wreath which ultimately makes you into a wraith. This is why you must forgive. That being said, forgiveness is not the same thing as seeking reconciliation. If you have been in a relationship where the other has been abusive or in which trauma has occurred, uh, it may actually be advisable to you not to, not to reconcile. Um, and, and, and there are times when it is wiser to not re-engage in the relationship or to take time as trust is rebuilt. And you might need help figuring out what kind of situation you're in. However, in most cases, those exceptions stated, God calls us not just to forgiveness, but to reconciliation. And in this situation, Paul is pushing these two men beyond forgiveness into reconciliation. How is he doing that? Well, note what he does. First, he advocates vouches for each of them to the other. Notice how carefully Paul does this about Onesimus. He says, verse eight, formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful to you and to me. He vouches for him. He's saying, I can attest, guys, this is a changed man. Not only that, he calls him his very heart. He affirms his deep affection for him. Verse 12, then he reorients Philemon's own relationship to Onesimus. Verse 15, he says, perhaps he was separated you for a little while that you may have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but now as a beloved brother, a fellow man and a brother in the Lord. Do you see what he's doing here? He's reframing Philemon's perception of who this young man is. He sees him as an enemy. He says, now he's a brother. He sees him as a fugitive. Now he says he's a son. He's reframing it. He's building empathy and connection. He's reframing how Philemon sees this young man now in and through the eyes of God. See, I think this is amazing. One of the things that happens when we're in conflict with each other is that we begin to caricature the other person. We focus on what separates us from them. Do you know how political cartoonists take one 
you know, like, you know, Obama's big ears or, you know, somebody's long neck. They, they take one prominent physical attribute of a person and they exaggerate it. This is what we do when we're hurt by someone. We think of the other in sort of a one-dimensional way. We exaggerate their behavior. So it's not just that he did something hurtful. He's a jerk. It's just not that she's lied to us. She's a liar. Now, you know, when you do something unthoughtful or lie, it's, it's different, of course, because you're nuanced, right? You're, you're complex. Um, you know, you, you have good reasons for doing the bad things that you do. <laughs> but that's self-justification, and that's exactly what the problem is, because when someone hurts you, you desperately want to separate yourself from them and even make them something other than human. I would never do that. Well, of course you would. Of course you would. I mean, not just that exact thing, but you do other stuff. And your heart is basically the same, and you're in the same family, and you're a brother, and you're a sister, just like you. I love what Miroslav Wolf says. He says, forgiveness, and I would say reconciliation flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. So Paul is vouching, reframing, rehumanizing Onesimus as a fellow brother in Christ, calling Philemon to identify with him as a fellow brother and a man. And this is the first step you can do. Think about the person you're in conflict with. How do you think about them when you ruminate and you retell the story about what happened? To do this is to resist retelling the story again and again, to make yourself the righteous victim and the other the malicious villain. And instead, choose to see your common humanity, your common belovedness, and your common status as a sinner who God loves, that's been saved by grace. That's the first thing Paul does, he reframes, he vouches. And then second, he bridges. These two men have a severed relationship. It's like they're on two sides of a relational canyon, right? On this side, you've got, you've got uh, uh, the, the slave master Philemon and he is angry and he has rights and he has what he is owed, both financially and legally, over here. And then over here, you've got Onesimus and he has anger and he has hurt, he has injury and he has what he owes both financially and legally. And so there seems to be this impassable breach between the two. And what does Paul do? He inserts himself right in the center. He goes to the place of deepest pain, hurt, misunderstanding, and woundedness. And he stands there right in the center. And he reaches his arms out. And he commends them into each other. He vouches for each of them to each other. He affirms their connection to them. He rebuilds trust. He calls each of them to what love is, requires of them. And then remarkably, just as a bridge must bear tremendous weight, Paul chooses to bear the weight of the cost of this offense. He offers his very self on behalf of this young man, Onesimus, the one who had the most to lose from this. He substitutes himself for this young man. Verse 18, he offers literally to pay his debts. Anything that he has owed, credit them to me. I am now the debtor, not him. So Paul, I mean, it's amazing. He stands in this place of hurt and pain, arms outstretched towards slave owner and slave, bearing the cost of their separation, doing everything he can to bring reconciliation in their estrangement. And who does that remind you of? Yeah, Sunday school answers allowed here. <laughs> Jesus Christ with arms outstretched between 
heaven and earth on the cross, between God and humanity, bridging not just God and humanity, but all the warring factions of the earth. His are the wounds that bind all of humankind, as the song says. Jesus bore the weight of all division and destruction and sin, closing the gap forever. And that is why, my friends, reconciliation always involves death. Losing something. Admitting you're wrong, letting go of your bitterness, letting go of your right to get even, denying yourself revenge. It is so costly. It is so death-bringing. But think of what it costs God to be reconciled to you. The death of God's own son on behalf of the world. So, Why do we do this? Because Christ's love compels us. We are compelled by the love of Christ to be his agents of reconciliation. Look, I mean, when at the center of your worldview is a crucified man who gave up his life for his enemies, what do you think is required of you? What kind of rights do you think you might be called to forfeit? What kind of demands do you think you might be called to let go? What kind of sacrificial acts of love might you be called to make? So I want you to think about this. Where in your life does reconciliation need to happen? For you or for others? Something immediately might come to mind in your own life or someone maybe like you're being called like Paul to insert yourself in a breach relationship between two others. There might be such a sensitive situation where you need help, right? Onesimus and Philemon couldn't have done this on their own without Paul. They needed Paul's help. And you might need that too. You might need a friend or a professional or therapist or someone to help you work this out. But this is the unequivocal call of the follower of Jesus, not estrangement, but reconciliation. So let me close. What have we talked about here? Grace changes everything, especially how we handle conflict in our relationships. Conflict in your relationship is not a sign that something is wrong. It's inevitable, but it all comes down to how you deal with it, right? Grace calls us and empowers us to do what is otherwise impossible, to seek reconciliation instead of forgiveness instead of retaliation and reconciliation over estrangement. Let me just say this. I believe, I am saying this with my burning heart for you, my dear friends. I believe that in this moment, this cultural moment of America, this work of forgiveness and reconciliation could indeed be the most radical act that we do as human beings in bearing witness to Jesus. I really do believe that. It is one of the ways that we are most out of step with the society around us and frankly, one of the ways that the church has most compromised. This is the weekend in which we celebrate and honor the life of Dr. Martin Luther King. And Dr. King and others in the original civil rights movement preached the power in the face of ruthless, hateful enemies, preached forgiveness and reconciliation and non-retaliation as a powerful work of healing and love for our society. And you know what? Tomorrow, MLK Day, all these politicians all across the spectrum, they're going to post inspirational quotes about MLK. Don't you believe it? Nobody believes it. They don't. People on the right, they see forgiveness and reconciliation as weak, as pathetic, as a foolhardy surrendering of power. People on the left see forgiveness and reconciliation as tools of the oppressor, perpetuating injustice and harming the victim. And then we wonder why our society is ripping apart. Over and against all these harmful voices stands the little church, the church of the cross, the church of death, the church of suffering, the church that goes the way of Jesus, the cruciform church. 
the church that chooses to be in union with our suffering Lord, who chooses to go the way of love for each other and for the world. As we are forgiven, we will forgive. As we have been reconciled, we will be reconciled. We will seek reconciliation. I truly believe that in this time, in this moment, this could be the greatest thing the church could ever offer to the world. May it be so. So here's what I want you to do. Remember how in the beginning I asked you to think about a person that you need to forgive or that you might need to be reconciled to? The band is just gonna sing a song and I just want you to imagine that person in front of you as we hear this song. And maybe just lift up their name to the Lord and invite him to show you what he would want you to do.